On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Pink Floyd's The Endless River. lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Tom Corcoran, Ken Gregory, and soon-to-be birthday boy Paul Zotter as we, as we discuss the final Pink Floyd album, The Endless River. It might be my next birthday by the time this gets published. It might might be. (laughs) (laughs) Outstanding. Yeah, so uh, we had a little little pre-palaver party today for Paul. That was very cool. That was fun. Yeah, thanks, guys. It was cool to see you guys out of nowhere. So, so you had like I guess a, a family time Zoom scheduled, uh-huh. and then we just kind of crashed the party at the end. Is that the way that yeah. worked out? Yeah, it was pretty fun. Cool, it was pretty cool. Until nice. until Ken showed up with a sleeveless shirt, then everybody everybody fleed. This <laughs> <guy>. <laughs> uh, that's my calling card. <laughs> it did. It, it, it like took it took me back to uh, to the good old days, Ken. <laughs> Well, we need uh, as much help as we can get getting back to the good old days these days because they're Ooh. further and further away. I was a little melancholy as I uh, as I uh, had a little snack after our uh, last get together and prepared to come down here for tonight and uh, and realized that this was it. This was uh, this was the last Pink Floyd album. Well, the last Pink Floyd album, but we do still have a couple of episodes that we've promised ourselves, um, as True. well as some lessons learned episodes with some friends of the Palaver. I'm uh, wondering if we get burned because our friends were so quarantined and so available for so many weeks, and now the world is opening up, and I hope we can keep tabs on our friends of the Palaver. We'll do our best here. We will do our best. So I can think of certainly two, if not three, friends of the Palaver that we can or should approach with regards to this. So we'll see how that works out. So yeah, Pink Floyd is the gift that keeps on giving. I guess Rush was the last time we did a segment this long without stopping. Mm. And I I have to say that we're in much better shape now than we were at the end of Rush. <laughs> you mean you mean me falling asleep on the floor with my iPad in my hand? <laughs> that was that was that that was a rough episode, not gonna lie. <laughs> Wait, which one was that? Which, which album was that? We did the last what, two, three, four, whatever it was, all at once, because I yeah. I didn't I couldn't even listen to them and yeah. We were all sick and tired and pissy and first I got yelled at for eating potato chips <laughs> and then <laughs> and then <laughs> and then at the end we just kept talking and uh go go figure and at the end it was like I was just tired and I was like falling asleep and Joe saw me falling asleep on the camera and at the very end of the episode he yells go to bed Paul <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh. Uh, but I would agree. I, the, the, it seems like Pink Floyd has just flown by. Yeah, it really does. Well, I, I mean, I will say they have less albums, not including the, the sort of two parts that we did for uh, Dark Side, Animals, and the three parts for The Wall. I guess that equals out. <laughs> yeah, we did four extra episodes. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, so so the, the episode in question, for those of you who want to go back and listen to us at our not finest, is episode 41, Rush ah. Part 16. That would be Test for Echo, Vapor Trails, the Snakes and Arrows, and Clockwork Angels. Oh, wow. Wow, I forgot that we did all those in one episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, is that the that's the only other time we've done four albums in one, except for the first yeah uh, two episodes I think where we crammed through four at once, or did wow. we do four the first one and two the second one I think and that sounds that sounds about right that's and then brave brave we cut our we got our mojo <laughs> and started doing one at a time <laughs> that's right we we were like hey wait a second we got to do this right well you and I needed you know, like forty minutes just to gush over brave generally that's speaking true. yeah. Oh my goodness! Um, I'm trying to stay on topic here with Pink Floyd. <laughs> oh, is that what we're talking about? <laughs> uh, it, it's so hard to do here. So we we last spoke about 1994's The Division Bell. They did Pulse in '95. They released a live London '66 '67 uh, in I want to say '95 as well. Then the first three singles was released in 1997. London. Oh, is there anybody out there? The Wall Live in 2000. Which we will discuss next episode. Really? Yes. Okay. Then in 2001, Echoes, the best of Pink Floyd. Which is phenomenal. We're just getting started with the re-releases. Oh, by the way, it's 2007. My God, Discovery is 2011. I have no idea what that is. We have the best of Pink Floyd, A Foot in the Door, 2011. Finally, 2014 is The Endless River. So I'm always trying to impress you guys with the timeline. I found the band that released a shit ton of albums in that period, starting with Afraid of Sunlight in 1995. Ooh. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, and then Friends with the Orchestra. Eleven fucking original albums and a live show in all this period. And just because we love Merlion that much, Afraid of Sunlight, 95, This Strange Engine, 97, Radiation, 98, Merlion.com, 99, Arachnophobia, 2001, Marbles, 2004, Somewhere else, 2007. Happiness is the Road, 2008. Less is More, 2009. Sounds That Can't Be Made, yes. 2012. Fuck Everyone and Run. Fear, 2016. And Friends with the Orchestra, 2019. That's phenomenal. But when was the original release date for The Endless River? It wasn't uh, in 2019. 2014 2014 yeah oh oh sorry 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 so merlin did not release 11 they did something more like eight or nine in that period but still but still yeah i mean you know a full half of you know their hogarth catalog released in the time between the division bell and um and the endless river and and i'll be curious after we get 
or after we get into it, to, to sort of explore a little bit about maybe how this came together, because obviously that's part of the story here. So, so Ken, does that cover the timeline of progressive rock, or can we talk about 2014 in specific? Is there anything of note in 2014? Hmm, when you put it that way. There is, actually. Uh, Transatlantic Kaleidoscope. I gotta apologize to some of these bands. Big Elf, Animals as Leaders, Perfect Being, Gazpacho. We're not we're not really doing the new prog right yet. Uh, Ian Anderson put out an album. We've heard a lot of good stuff about IQ from Friends of Blabber, and we haven't had time to dive into them. Mostly Autumn, Anathema, Mastodon. Oh, yes, did Heaven and Earth. We did review that one. We did. Somewhat controversial, Heaven and Earth. Yeah, but it touches my heart. It, 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 it's good. Opeth, Pale Communication, Pineapple Thief, The Contortionist, Special. A lot going on. A lot going on. I, I will say this. Um, I, I, I don't know if uh, I'm delighted in some, in some way, shape, or form. I don't know if it's pride or not, but when we started this, uh, this this podcast. Uh, if I would have looked at this list of 2014 of all these artists, I may have, outside of the obvious ones, um, maybe have picked out one or two um, that I had he even heard of, let alone listened to. And while I agree with you, Ken, I still don't know a lot about these uh, these different uh, bands. Like I've I've really enjoyed what I've heard from a lot of them, and and recognize a lot of these bands, like the Pineapple Thief and uh, anathema it's just cool it's cool to see it dave kersner's new world came out in 2014 as well which is spectacular sweet so uh there is a lot of um it's just cool that oh your uh, boy devin townsend z yeah. squared yeah his uh his uh ziltoid's uh second album which is mm, is not my favorite of his but you know he's creative guy it's good good stuff so it's just fun that that we are slowly becoming uh, acclimated to these, uh, the new, the neo prog, if you will. So we've, we've grown and we've learned. So yay for the palaver. Yay. <laughs> yeah. So if we talk then about the particulars of this album, the endless river was released on seven November, 2014. Um, it was produced by David Gilmore, youth, Andy Jackson, Phil Manzanera and Bob Ezrin. Um, and it was released on the labels Parlophone and Columbia. The uh, performers would be one David Gilmore, Nick Mason, and Richard Wright, with the help of Guy Pratt on bass guitar, Bob Ezrin, um, also on bass guitar and some keyboards. Andy Jackson played bass guitar on some. John Karen shows up. Damon Iddens. Anthony Moore. Gilad Atzman. Uh, on tenor saxophone and clarinet, Durga McBroom, um, Louise Marshall, Sarah Brown, Stephen Hawking for voice samples, and um, let's see, Youth gets additional programming, sound design credits, uh, Eric Bander, Michael Rendell, and Escala, which apparently is a string quartet. So, yeah. Uh, lot, lots going on here. The the track listing. Now, this is interesting. Um, Ken and I had a, a discussion on the text. I was working off of the 2014 CD release. 
Apparently the expanded version is uh, available on Spotify. So the original CD that I listened to contains 18 tracks, including Things Left Unsaid, It's What We Do, Ebb and Flow, Some, Skins, Unsung, um, Anacena, The Lost Art of Conversation, On Noodle Street, Nightlight, Alon's Y1, or is it Alonzi? Alonzi. French. Oh, okay. Alonzi 1, Autumn 68, Alonzi 2, Talkin' Hawkin', Calling, Eyes to Pearls, Surfacing, and Louder Than Words. The big blurb is The Endless River is the 15th studio album by the English rock band Pink Floyd, released in November 2014 by Parlophone Records in the UK and Columbia Records in the US. It was the third Pink Floyd album recorded under the leadership of guitarist David Gilmour after the departure of Roger Waters in 1985. How long are we uh, post Sid Barrett here? We should probably mention him. We should. We should. And the first following the death in, in 2008 of keyboardist Richard Wright, who appears posthumous. I can't believe I can't say that fucking word. Posthumously. Posthumously. Thank you. Um, Gilmour and Mason's stated that they believed it would be the final Pink Floyd album. The Endless River comprises instrumental and ambient music based on material recorded during sessions for the band's previous album, The Division Bell, 1994. Additional material was recorded in 2013 and 2014 on Gilmore's Astoria Boat Studio and in Medina Studios in Hove, England. It was produced by Gilmore, Youth, Andy Jackson, and Phil Manzanera. Only one track, Louder Than Words, has lead vocals. After the death of longtime Pink Floyd artist Storm Thurgeson in 2013, the cover was created by artist Ahmed Imed Eldin, design company Styro, Stylo Rouge, and Aubrey Powell, co-founder of Thurgeson's design company Hypnosis. The Endless River was promoted with the Louder Than Words single and artwork installations in cities around the world. It became the most pre-ordered album of all time on Amazon UK and debuted at number one in several countries. The vinyl edition was the fastest selling UK vinyl release since 1997. The album received mixed reviews. Some critics praised the nostalgic mood, while others found it unambitious or meandering. So... Yeah, they're meandering for uh, commercial music beds. So, like, and, and <laughs> there, there are a couple of interesting things when I look at the, the wiki page on this. Uh, you know, I get fixated on, on certain things. So, studios. We all know I love studios. I look at this, and I'm not at all surprised to see Astoria or Medina Studios, which you already mentioned, or even Britannia Row, given some of what we know about the background of this. Um, I don't even know necessarily what Olympic Studios is, so I'm not really surprised by that. But when I see Royal Albert Hall, I kind of perk up a little bit and go, what parts were recorded at Royal Albert Hall? So very fascinating. Then up above that, there's a line that says recorded. Now, again, 1993, not surprised. 2013, 2014, not at all surprised. When I see 1969, I'm like, okay. This mm. now is getting very, very interesting. So, you know, and I don't know if we have the, the time or the wherewithal to uncover that. I don't, I personally don't know um, what the lore is. Paul, you have some idea? I, I know some lore on that. Awesome. So when they, in 1969, they performed 
at the Royal Albert Hall and there was a huge pipe organ in Royal Albert Hall and Rick convinced them to uh, to uh, let him use it. And, you know, look, uh, similar to how we mentioned, wouldn't it be cool to see Rick noodle on that uh, that pipe organ in Philly, right, that one time? Yeah. Well, he actually convinced them to do it and they set up some recording mics and recorded him going nuts and uh that's ended up on one of these tracks and i wish i could remember the the which one it was but they uh they used it for one of the tracks on here oh it, it, yeah it was it was autumn um autumn 69 yeah or 68 yeah, but, was? No, but i mean they call it 68 yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, autumn 68 which you know and, and we can we can sort of get to that so you know and 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 that's interesting right so we knew we knew some of the story from this. It's talked about in the podcast, The Lost Art of Conversation, wonderfully so. Um, you know, the, the the general thinking here, I think, is extraordinarily well, well meant, right? Uh, um, you know, take this, this, this music that you had and you know put it together in a way and 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 release it now you get the, the lore gets a little crisscrossed a little bit so if you listen to the lost art of conversation you know the the way i interpret what is the story that is told there is when they finished up with the delicate sound of thunder tour and they took whatever time off and they got back together and wanted to to figure out what they could write as a band and they basically hung out at Britannia Row Studios for a couple of weeks. And, you know, it was either the three of them or maybe Guy Pratt was there. I've heard both stories of that. And David Gilmore's got a DAT machine next to him. And if he hears something that perks his ears, he hits play on the DAT. So they have all of these snippets. And, you know, one of the the in the studio um, interview that I had, had uh, listened to for last episode, you know, it was, I was interested to hear David say, look, it didn't matter if anything on that record made it onto the division bell or not. We just needed to play together as a band and, and sort of figure out what we were going to do. And then it's, it's kind of interesting that all of that turns into um, this. Now, this is where things get a little bit different. So in, in the Lost Art of Conversation podcast, Andy Jackson explains that, you know, after they finished the division bell, he it was his idea to make this sort of supercut mix of all of these bits and pieces to create something along the lines of metal, something that was more instrumental, more expansive, um, you know, less um, less structured, um, and, and he was going to call it the big spliff. Now, the way Andy explains that, and, and David's story seems to back it up, is no one planned for this. This was something that Andy said, this would be a cool idea. What if we did this? Mm. And it, it laid fallow for a while. Now, in the in the studio um, interview that I listened to for last week, Nick Mason um, is quoted basically as saying, it was always the plan to have these two separate albums. Now, if it was always the plan, why did it take 20 years to get the second one out would be maybe a question I have. But it just, it 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 struck me as very odd when I heard that, because I'm like, that goes against everything I know. Now, huh. because Nick never really, you know, Nick's book never really captured my interest, I have not even gotten anywhere <laughs> close in the book to... Uh, 
to to reading about this section in there. So I don't know if if that's in the book or not. Um, but you know, so if if anyone you know, any of our listeners have any specific lore or more information about the origin of this, we'd be happy to hear. What, what's interesting is in the, uh, so this is fresh in my mind because I just watched it tonight. They had, there's like this nine minute electronic press kit YouTube video on this. And it's mostly an interview with, with uh, David and um, Nick. And Nick does say, Something similar to that originally the division bell, like they, you know, as they were putting all of this stuff together, that they had toyed around with the idea of having like a double album where it would be one of more like commercially readable songs ready to go and another, another disc of more ethereal jams, more, more like that. Um, but you're right, Joe. If that was really the case, and they decided to just do one, why did why did it take them 20 years to come back and and do it? I like the story on the podcast. Yeah, and and you know, obviously, I don't know what you know what actually happened. Uh, it just you know, you got you got two stories that don't necessarily line up. It doesn't really matter either way, to be honest with you. It's it's probably worth noting that both of those stories were probably stated in mediums and in effect to promote whatever it was they were talking about at that moment. So That's maybe true. they doctor the stories for they are marketing wizards. Yeah. Guys. Yeah, it, it could very well be. Uh, you know, I've I've come across certain situations like that. So all of this gets me thinking you know, it, it's one thing to to have, you know, these these recordings of these little snippets during jams and everything else, which is which is interesting. And there, there's a sort of throwaway line in the Lost Art of Conversation. I believe it's spoken by Poe Powell. And he makes a very passing reference to the the Pink Floyd archivist some wonderfully helpful person. And he, he speaks to all of these things that are in the Pink Floyd archives. Dude, I want that job. <laughs> that job has got to be phenomenal. Are you kidding me? The Pink Floyd archivist? God, that's like a freaking wet dream. So, Careful what you wish. <laughs> so if, if you're the Pink Floyd archivist and you have access to all of these these tapes and someone has the time and the wherewithal and decides they want to do something with them, that's great. But what I'm sort of fixated on right now, and I, I don't know the answer and I can't, uh, I don't know that I have any way to figure it out, but I can't stop thinking about it, is how much of that was, you know, was original? How much of it was added on? Is there any rhyme or reason? Um, you know, like in, in certain cases, like, there, this obviously, from a musical point of view, is a little different. I think there are a lot of callbacks to other things, but but fundamentally, it's it's a little bit different. Gilmore himself presents a little differently here, and I wonder if some of that isn't that you know a lot of the backbone was really based around recordings of Richard because that was all they had. And in some cases, maybe David didn't want to step all over that, so he he stayed back a little bit. I, I I don't know. I'm just I'm curious about you know what parts were old, what parts were new, how they got put together, you know, all of that. I'm just I'm fixated on it. I am also interested in it. 
And I did try to look into that, actually, because on the wikis, it does mention that they did record some new stuff. And but it actually, if you keep going, like on the wikis, there's a couple of uh, paragraphs down. It, it, it mentions that they do that they did record some stuff new, but they don't say what. Right. Exactly. And yeah. So um, that sort of got me thinking about it so it's probably it's out there somewhere um and, and maybe if one of us fi- finds it somewhere we can sort of add it to one of the um follow-up episodes we're going to do on on the on the wall <laughs> yeah. well Brighton gets 11 out of 18 writing credits as a partner mostly but he also has of that 11 three are him exclusively as the composer so Yes, it's clearly an homage to write. You know, and 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 I totally, I, I totally support that. I think it's. Let me ask you a question, because we had a little bit of banter before we we got on air about this record, and I don't know. I have my suspicions, but I don't necessarily have a clear idea. Do you guys like this album? Do you think this is an album that should exist? It's it's interesting um, you phrase it like that because. One of my my few notes that I had was that um, I think this is the most Floyd sounding record since the Wall, but it's sort of my least favorite since the Wall. <laughs> so it sort of contradicts itself in a way that I love it because I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm listening to Pink Floyd. Like there's this sort of nostalgia, and there's this. Um, sort of feeling you get when there's certain instruments are played and these guys are, are, are playing and there's, a, there's more of a Floyd sound on this album than anything they've done in the past um, prior, you know, since the wall, uh, you know, I think anyway. Um, but somehow, uh, you know, even though the last song has lyrics, which I actually love that song, by the way, even though the last song has lyrics and it's all instrumental, it's, it's, it does, I have to agree with the opinion that it does meander a little bit. And I don't know if, I think if, I think it should exist, Joe, but I think that they should have fleshed things out a little more and been more open to really open things up a little bit, even though Rick Wright was not alive, um, you know, sort of, I mean, now we're talking in the days of Pro Tools and, you know, a lot of things can be done a lot easier. Um, they, they could have maybe either sampled some things of Rick's or, you know, just for a small period of time, you know, just not, not had keyboards or maybe even added somebody else. But um, I think it needed to be, uh, there needed to be some more of that cinematic motion that we've all loved, that we've all grown to love about Pink Floyd even since the early days, since the, the very early days. And it, it sort of has that, but it's not fleshed out. And it's sort of, I can't help but think that, you know, even though I, I don't like saying this about, you know, people that we, you know, really respect, I can't help but think that such, such, to some extent that they were sort of sitting on their laurels and sort of being like, okay, we're going to do this. And um, Pink Floyd fans will love it, you know, but it's just, it's, it needed to be to really garner my my respect. It it needed there. There's, there's beautiful moments on here where I'm like, oh, that's nice, and then they're just 
and then it just falls. And it just it needed to be a little bit more thought out. And I say that tongue in cheek, thought out, because there's so much time that went by right. between <laughs> the division bell and this one. I mean, the, the, do they do they really need more time? Um, but so I'm a, a little bit uh, to, again to to try to answer your question the best I can, Joe. I'm a little bit on the fence, but um, I think that it was good that they did it. I just wish they did it with a little bit more gusto. Yeah, some of the reviews, Wikipedia has the good reviews first and the bad reviews second. And the bad reviews are, unfortunately, hysterical. Um, <laughs> because, it, you know, it, it, it's punching a wet paper bag to take a crack at this one if you really want to. Um, but there are so many good moments or so many emotional moments. For me, I, w- I went out for a long jog and I was in this catatonic state. Uh, I didn't know what I was doing or where I was. And at some point I woke up and Stephen Hawkins was talking to me. So it was, it was generally a good experience, but it, but, it, but it wasn't a conscious experience. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't, you know, poke me in between the eyes like a cinematic experience, Tom, like you said. Yeah, and, you know, I, I wonder, you know, if some of this fragmentation is a result of a desire, again, to maintain the integrity of the original recordings, to not doctor Richard more than needed to be done. If that's the case, while I understand and and fully accept your point, Tom, because you're absolutely right, you know, it's it's the Kersner effect. If something's cooking, let it cook. And and nothing really cooks here very long. But if if their intention was was to maintain the integrity of the original right recordings, you know, do you give them a pass on that one? I don't know. I'm I'm I, I'm more likely to, I think, but I'm I'm a softy. So, didn't David Gilmore have a uh, solo album uh, in between Division on, Bell and this on an island? Yes, yes, on an island. And and I Wright remember- was on that tour in 2007. Okay, he played with them on yeah. that tour. Yeah, I mean, that album, I mean, I should probably go back and listen to it before I, I say anything good or bad about it, but I don't remember it blowing me away when it came out, right? It had a song, I got it, I listened to it, and I was like, yeah, okay. Um, and then I remember when this came out, I was, I definitely was less than ecstatic when I heard it because I had hoped for something more than just ambient music. But I, I would say in the long run, and particularly going through their entire discography from front to back, um, I love the fact that this album exists. And I think that that um, perhaps that perhaps the melancholy feeling that I that I have coming to the end of their whole catalog, at the same time, it's somewhat uplifting to just have a long series of, of just ambient sort of things that just remind me of so many different aspects of Pink Floyd to just kind of, you know, take me, take me out to sea. And, and it's fascinating, Paul, that you should say that, right? Because, you know, again, it, it, it's evocative to me of the cover. And we talked mm-hmm. about this cover when we were ranking the covers. And again, 
I pointed to the story of this as told by Poe Powell in The Lost Art of Conversation. And, and I think it's a very, you know, it, and it, this is not the first time we've had this conversation about a Pink Floyd album where, you know, the, the musicians are putting together the music and the visual guys are putting together the visuals and they're all in complete concert of what they're trying to convey and they want the images to match up with the purpose of the music and the music itself mm. and and to hear to hear Poe talk about you know the you know this album talking or or you know being about you know the 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 lack of the people who weren't there anymore Storm was mm. gone and, and, and Richard was gone. Um, you know, it, it's kind of powerful, to me at least. And, and looking at the front cover, and, and I say front cover very specifically, because when we talked about that, that album cover episode, I, would, I honestly, I, I had not found my physical CD yet. So I was going off of the front cover, which is very obvious in a lot of ways. I think it's very poignant. I think it it tells this story, Paul, that that the music in some way conveys. Mm. But when I found the CD and I flipped it over, I find the picture on the back to be in some ways more thought provoking and on some level, perhaps a little disturbing. If you look at the back cover, it's the same sea of clouds. It's the same boat, but the boat is now empty. Mm. So on the front cover where you have this at least vision of, you know, and I'm going to project, I'm going to say, this is, you know, the person who is leaving you. They're, they're rowing down this river. They're in the boat. They're on their way to wherever it is they have to go. When you turn it over, they're not there anymore. It's just the boat. What the hell happened to them? You know, it's, this is, I, I, I'm, I'm profoundly disturbed at this point. And I, wow. maybe it's a good thing. Maybe they got to where they're going and they don't need the boat anymore. And, and maybe I shouldn't worry about them. But, you know, what happens if you fall out of your boat when you're on the endless river? I don't know. Huh. Provocative. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is the kind of crap that keeps me up at night. Yeah, I, I I I had no idea that 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 was on the back cover. Um, I love and I love it. I love that it's there. Hearing that story because I, mm. I I if like you said, Joe, if you if you believe some of the things they've said that you know and take that at face value, and it's not just some promotional hoo ha ha, um, which I don't. I mean, I don't think it is because there's really not much. That makes me think that they really need to, to do that. You know, part of the joy of of creating the Division Bell was just getting back together, like you said, playing music as a band and doing the things that they do uh, for this for the love of it, right? No other reason. And if you accept that that that's what this record is, it's them after everything they've done, everything they've accomplished, just coming back and just. And just playing, laying down tracks for the sake of doing it because they love it. It really is that sort of just this wonderful f finality to this long, t wonderful career. And I would think of the empty boat as 
you know, the, the musicians, you know, have stepped, stepped aside and the boat continues down the river for everyone to, uh, to enjoy. But the captains are now retired. I like it. I like it a lot. So yeah, very cool. Tom, you had asked the question, you know, do, do we want to go through this track by track? Um, I mean, I'm prepared to do that, but I also understand that in a lot of ways, this album doesn't necessarily lend itself to that sort of approach. Now, I've got a slew of notes that I'd be happy to run through, but I do have a general statement with regards to this that it, it, I feel it shows up throughout this album, sometimes more than others. Um, but I, I will say that in my experience and my listening to this, this is as close to Tangerine Dream as Pink Floyd is ever going to go. <laughs> um, you know, and, and there are some there are some places where this sounds very Tangerine Dream. And I'm not talking How did you ever find Tangerine Dream? Ah, Tangerine Dream is fascinating. And it's 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 one of those happy accident stories. So my sister, of all people, came across Tangerine Dream from one of her artsy-fartsy friends. And she said, you need to listen to this band. You're going to love them. But she, she pointed me to one specific album from, I believe it was probably the mid-80s. I believe it was called Tiger. And, um, you know, it's, it's pretty good. But at some point, and I don't even remember where it was, I was in some record store. It was probably the cool import um, record store in Wilmington, if I had to guess, because I can't think of where else I would have got this. But somehow, I got my hands on um, the, 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 this album, and it was from earlier. It was probably from like the, the mid to late 70s, and it's called Pergamon. And it's, it's, a, it's a full CD of a live performance. And presumably the vinyl, which I still don't have, I've only got the CD, was, you know, it was Kikot Part 1 and Kikot Part 2, which presumably was mm. the first side and the second side. And it's that era of, of Tangerine Dream that this reminds me of. And it is that album that I have since the time I bought it been fixated on and I judge every Tangerine Dream album against and none of them have equaled it. Some have come close, but none of them have, have equaled it. So that's that's the experience. That's how I found Tangerine Dream. And, you know, for whatever it is that they do, and, and they do things fundamentally different from Pink Floyd, but there are moments on here that just scream that out. While at the same time, also hearkening back to Pink Floyd's very own past, it's 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 a very interesting amalgam to me. Thanks for that aside. Nice. So, how do you want to uh, to deal with this, gentlemen? Well, I mean, there there are, there are clear there 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 is a topography, there is a map to this. It does something because aren't the the the, the grouping. You know, the track sequence, as it were, is actually very critical as as the names of the songs include in the streaming media formats and Spotify. It says side one, part one, side yeah. one, part two, side one, part three. 
So it, it, it was clear that it was a very deliberate sequencing. And I find that it, it really does have to be like this. I, I would be very uncomfortable playing this album on random. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that would work out very well. <laughs> because some of the tracks are so short, they're clearly segues to the next track. And, and, and that's uh, the interesting thing, right? Because if we, yeah. if we believe the story, you know, these things weren't necessarily created to be played in this order. Yeah. But yet, this is the order that they are meant to be played. So they, some of the things that were redone or, or done new had to have been created to create this flow, I would think. Yeah. That, that certainly makes sense. Yeah, yeah that's logical. Yeah, and 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 let, let let's let's just do the bird's eye view and call out the highlights. There is one song with words, which is louder than words that that finishes out the eighteen track version, and then within the four sides you get the longer pieces, and and just by the fact that they have more real estate, they they demand our attention. While we're on that, Ken, do we know? whether louder than words was recorded definitely recorded during that time of the division bell or do we think that maybe that was a new one do 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 any of us have the answer to that the i i want to say that this, certainly the lyrics being put to it were very current with the the making polly sampson wrote the lyrics mm -hmm. and she wrote them about the special bond and musical connection that richard david and nick had right that's louder than words right that they were right that, that the music was actually speaking louder than and then ironically she wrote lyrics about it um so but i don't i did notice when i was listening to this one of the first times and this track came on i came to my phone because i did feel like the guitar sound particularly was so much like Marillion-esque. It's sugar mice. It, right, right? It's <laughs> totally sugar mice. I, I had there's to check that, to see There's if... even that sort of breakdown in, in the middle of it that it's just like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I had to check to see if Spotify started me on a playlist, you know? So, right, so right. I, 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 could, I could definitely buy into the idea that this was recorded after everything else or written after everything else. Right. But I mean, yeah, Rothery gets his comeuppance for years. People are going up to Rothery saying, "Yeah, man, you sound just like Dave Gilmore." <laughs> and then, and then when Gilmore runs out of material, he's ripping off Rothery. I love it. It's just perfect. Which uh. you know, it it never occurred to me until we started having this conversation just a couple of weeks ago. And I, you know, I'm such a, a moron for not having thought of it earlier. But there's the beauty of Marillion, right? At least when it started out. Because you had Rothery, who's channeling David Gilmore, and Fish, who's channeling Peter Gabriel, and you get the Pink Floyd Genesis mashup that, you know, just works so well. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. But but here, yes, David Gilmore is, is in my opinion, clearly ripping off um, Stephen Rothery. Um, you know, I don't know if, if, if he invited Rothery to the barbecue and they were, they oh. were jamming out on sugar mice and, uh, you know, it just kind of seeped in. I, I don't know. Okay. Well, since this album is so sparse with words, we are permitted to wallow in the words that be. So here we go. Louder than words. 
We bitch and we fight, diss each other on sight. But this thing we do, these times together, rain or shine or stormy weather, this thing we do with world-weary grace, we've taken our places. We could curse it or nurse it and give it a name or stay home by the fire filled with desire, stoking the flame. But we're here for the ride. And the hook, it's louder than words, this thing that we do, louder than words, the way it unfurls, louder than words, the sum of our parts, the beat of our hearts is louder than words, louder than words. And I guess any musician that's had a go working with other musicians can relate to uh, the verse here, you know, or any collaboration, but we bitch and we fight, diss each other on sight. It, 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 maybe Polly was being a little too harsh or too real or something, but it gets the message across. Yeah, I love I love the the repeated phrase "this thing that we do." Mm. I, I for some reason that that sort of resonates with me as well as the line uh, with "world weary grace." Yes, you know it just I I it, it's not my favorite lyric all told but it it does tell a story and i think it does you know convey a certain message that's appropriate so i'm on board it is and uh, i think i think the video they put out for this was very endearing it was tasteful it was sort of a goodbye to richard and um it was it was it was tastefully done yeah Glad I got to see that. Mm-hmm. The close-ups of Gilmore singing, though, were a little unnerving. <laughs> Just saying. I kept looking at him, and I was like, God, look at his, his bald, and he's got a scraggly gray beard. And then, like, three minutes later, I went into the bathroom and looked in the mirror, and I was like, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, 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 you know, that's, that's the peak. They leave it to the end for a reason. And then found that the beginning was a little loose, but then um, the side two really had the flow to it. Some into skins, into unsung. And then the peak for me is Anasina. So there's a lot of buildup, which is mostly Wright and Mason in those first three tracks. And then Anasina is written by Gilmore and includes the sax solo. Mm, yeah. And th- that, 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 that could be the artistic peak of this album just the way that they all flow together for me since we're talking about anacena I, I hope i'm not going to crap on your parade ken every time i listen to this the traditional christmas carol do you hear what i hear hops into my head <laughs> and, and it, well it kind of throws me off a little bit <laughs> the very first chord sounds like it's going to be us and them I wish he just had a different beginning or something. When the piano hits, it is a little corny. But really, do you hear what I hear? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Now that you mention it. (laughs) For for, for the uninitiated to Palaver Secrets, I have bone conduction headphones underneath my real headphones. And I'm actually listening to Anacena right now. And no one is necessarily aware of that fact. But I, I, I am in real time hearing this Christmas carol happen. So. 
And it's, you know, it's one of those things where once I heard that, I'm like, well, oh, damn it. And I just, I can't unhear it. I still enjoy the song because it is, it definitely is one of the highlights for obvious reasons. I mean, just having the, uh, the, the saxophone on there sets it apart. It, 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 it separates itself. But yeah, there's just, I don't know. It's only three minutes long. And every time I hear it, I feel like I just listen to a 10 minute epic. It's that big when it swells up. And, and, yeah. and I think this goes into, Ken, what you were talking about when you went out for a run with this, right? And you sort of went into this catatonic state. And, and you know, this is what, what Andy Jackson apparently was going for when he called it the big spliff. You know, the, 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 the space-time continuum gets disrupted when you listen to this. The, the long tracks seem very short. The short tracks seem very long. It's, it's all sort of mixed up and jumbled. Mm -hmm. It, it Without being outright stoner music, it very much is a headpiece. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if you sit down to listen to this, or if you're running and listening to it, your brain just kind of goes off somewhere. It's quite it, amazing. It really is like four sides of an album, right? It's not, I mean, I, I'm not even really cognizant necessarily that I'm listening to tracks when I listen to it. I, it's just kind of washing over me song by song track by track oh it's many of them are like the beginning of an album of a pink floyd album you know it's like i keep waiting for the next you know i keep waiting for the song to start and nope it's just another <laughs> intro <laughs> well and, and but i do like it i mean i like it and, and again for for me and i would have never ever picked up on any of this prior to this exercise but tom you had pointed out you know this is this is the most pink floyd album since the wall and, and i hear you know a lot of things i i and maybe because i'm unduly fixated but i hear callbacks to to more and obscured by clouds i hear callbacks specifically to to metal um you know the obvious connection with um summer of 68 with autumn of 68 you know it's it just it it, mm. you know, it, it, and it, there's it's just like a catalog, and even on, um, so even on on talking Hawkin, there's that one sort of way buried back in scream that almost pulls you back to Great Gig in the Sky. It like it starts to, and then it lets you go right away. It's very fleeting, but it, it's you know every time I hear it, I you know I'm. My brain goes right there. It's almost like running through the whole Floyd catalog bit by bit. You know, it's 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 fascinating. Yeah. I mean, not to mention in the first half of the album, we basically get a recapitulation of Shine on You Crazy Diamond and Welcome to the Machine right? as well. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, um, you know, it's it's what we do. I, one of my notes says Shine on You Crazy Diamond parts 10 through 15. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, writes synth sounds specifically. Yeah, right. Yeah. 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 Wonderful. This is like we should nickname this Wright's Revenge because <laughs> this is like his revenge after like the final cut, like not being in the final cut or even in, you know, very little even in animals yeah. if you want to go back that far um and and then momentary lapse of reason even you know uh you know he, he was brought back but on a minimal uh, uh level there but um this was 
a, a certainly a great finish for him. And this was Richard Wright in all his glory. And again, I, I am glad they did it. I, I would have just, it sort of brings back what I had mentioned, I think last week that I, I really wish that they would have put out at least a couple more albums in this huge space of time. And we've already talked about all the, the big chunks of time in between these, these albums, but you know, just, just being greedy. I, I wish there was more music. Right. So, I mean, it's, I mean, that's a good thing because it says a lot about the, the band that, that you want more, but I, I can't help but think, okay, guys, you had a lot of time here. Um, why couldn't you put another couple of albums together? But um, I think if that what's done was what's done is done and moving on, I think if you know that we do have this album is, is nice because Richard Wright was such a big part of Pink Floyd over the years. And some of the, the greatest moments that, that we've talked about over this chapter, the Pink Floyd chapter, has had Richard Wright in in a, in, a, in in our sentences, in our, in, our, in our thoughts about whatever it is that we're talking about. I mean, he was very much a part of this, so it's nice that um, you know he was he was heavy in this and the sound. I mean, like we said, the sound really is Pink Floyd. So it was it's it's fun to hear. I mean, they're also yeah. old, Tom. So I mean, I guess maybe they just ran out of cast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, but, well, you know, well, I mean, you're right, Paul. But I mean, <laughs> Gilmore did do a solo album, like prior it's to true. this, um, and and he did have you know Richard Wright touring with him. That's so, right. That's right. Why yeah. couldn't you just? You know, it, was, yeah. it was funny. There was there was a it, I watched a documentary on on that tour. That was the one where we were talking when they were in the rehearsal space. And Roger Waters was like in the building right next door, oh, and there was that's this. What that was? Yeah, and and there was that that really really awkward video of them sort of meeting up in the parking lot that was just cringy to watch. Yeah, but in that documentary, at one point, they're talking to Richard Wright, and and he was great because he's like, you know, he was he was talking about the tour, and he said, you know, this isn't a Pink Floyd tour. This is David's tour. This is this is his deal. And we do whatever he says. And he's like, it's great. <laughs> I just do what he tells nice. me to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, his MO since the wall, really. Yeah. Yeah, right. The wall right. tour. <laughs> so let me, I, I'd like to maybe run through my notes here quickly and, and maybe pepper you guys with some thoughts or questions that sort of popped up and, and maybe get your reaction on certain things. Yeah. How would that work? Great. Love it. So if we start at the beginning, Things Left Unsaid. Now, I mentioned that this album as a whole is as close as Pink Floyd is ever going to get to Tangerine Dream. I'm going to ask the question, in Things Left Unsaid, is is there a moment or two or three where Pink Floyd approaches yes Something in, say, the Awaken era or the uh, going totally, to the one era. I, I'm down with that for sure. And, and, Absolutely. And, and it's it's when I heard that, it's like again, as with everything in this album, it sort of comes into focus and then it goes mm. right back out of focus. <laughs> it, it's like. <laughs> 
<laughs> sorry. You're right. You're right. Yeah, your your brain is just starting to sort of process. Hey, that sounds kind of like yes, and then it's gone. And you're like, well, did I imagine it? But you go back and listen to it, and I think it's there. Yeah, I agree. Which is interesting, given the fact that, and we've talked here on the Plaver ad nauseum about how singular a guitarist Steve Howe is. I just found that to be funny. I, f- I feel like it's more the ambience of the keys and the and just the atmosphere that that for me at least that that's that that's part of it. But the, there's yeah. there's something it, that Gilmore does there that that first brought it to my attention. Mm. But you're right; it, it is the whole sort of melange that's going on. Now Ooh. we talked a little bit about it's what we do, right? So obviously, this reminds us of of. Um, Shine on You Crazy Diamond. There is, and much like Shine on You Crazy Diamond, but it, again, it's two two minutes and 51 seconds into the album, there's the start of this guitar phrase that just gives me chills. And it's amazing that you go that far into an instrumental song before you get to the part that gives you chills. Mm. Um, I just, I find it funny. Um and then, and then after you get that one phrase, Gilmore just does his blues lead for a while um, that I think is just divine. So I love that. Ebb and flow, I don't have anything to say about that. My note literally says, meh. <laughs> now, some, um, when this is, and Ken, this was the segment for you. Some into unsung and into... Um, some skins unsung, yeah. and then peaking with Anasia. Exactly. So, so some, and again, you know, this doesn't really kick in till you know a minute fifty into the track. But once it does, it really takes off for me. Um, skins is interesting, and, and I'm, I feel like I'm too fixated on all of the things that this reminds me of, as opposed to maybe what it actually is, um, but. Skins to me feels very much like something that the church would have done. Hmm. Um, you know, it, it it has that sort of, and and the church was very spacey in a lot of ways, and they would go into these these you know broad musical journeys in the middle of songs and everything else, and 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 that pull that I get in Skins is a little bit like that, and it's a little unusual, obviously, to have Nick Mason be so busy. We haven't heard him do yeah. this since, you know, <laughs> 1968 or something to that effect. <laughs> but hopefully it was fun. Uh, uh, I love it. I don't really have anything to say about Unsung necessarily. And I already talked my thing about Anacena. So very, very cool. So for for the CD, when you get to the Lost Art of Conversation, this is the first break on the CD. And I just think the piano on, on here is absolutely beautiful on noodle street has to me there there's something about the um the the keyboard sounds here it, that that made me think of angelo badalamente who is the uh mm. the composer who did the twin peaks score ah and cool. it it you know there again it's it's this he, he's another one who's able to sort of take you places. And, and so I don't know if any of this is were influences on them or, if, you know, how that came about. The timing's about right. If they were recording this in 94, um, Battle of Mente and, and Twin Peaks would have been big in the, you know, 90, what, I think it was 91 that started. 
So, I mean, that it, it could be potentially contemporaneous with that. Don't really know. Don't have anything on Nightlight. Allons-y, both one and two, I think, are absolutely beautiful. I love... I love that. I've mentioned, I've invoked Red Rider before on Pink Floyd. Mm. I'm going to invoke it here again. Oh, that's the only time I'm agreeing with you in this whole episode. So <laughs> some of the... I mean, I'm, well, feel free to disagree with me while I'm rambling, Ken. <laughs> but, 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 but Red Rider is essentially Tom Cochran with some stellar musicians. And... Uh, there's definitely a strat sound with whammy bar work, distorted stuff. So, so yeah, is it is it the guitar? It, well, yeah, well, the, it, the clean it, guitar with the delay to, yeah, get, to get it, you going. Yeah, it, it's and, it, and, and it's definitely something off of Neruda, which is a, a very dark, clean, beautiful album. Yeah, Alonzi meaning, let's go. So you can tell that there are a lot of slow tempos in this album, but once you hit. Alan Z, it's like, oh, we're moving. We're doing this. We're, we're doing the Floyd thing. Let's go. Cool. And, and you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm amused uh, on the Autumn 68, which is presumably right after Summer 68. <laughs> it makes a perfect amount of sense. <laughs> so, you know, I, I get that. Very, very cool. Um, I'm going to ask the question, besides the the great gig callback and talking Hawkin. In some ways, even though it's it's obviously very different, I'm going to ask the question: Is talking Hawkin better than keep talking? Hmm. Sandwich parodies aside, no. <laughs> um, I, you know what's all, what's been striking me about talking Hawkin is that I've always been trying to figure out like should have this should this have been the introduction to keep talking. Or should this have been the the part that follows the song afterwards? Yeah, um, I could imagine it being either, and uh, it's almost like I would have liked it to have just been tagged on to uh, to. Um, but you know, this is part of the fun of this of this record. It's like it's almost like you're listening to this album while you're taking the tram ride through the Pink Floyd Museum. You know. And you're looking, you're looking at all the exhibits, and this is what's playing in the background to kind of, you know, get you along your way. And this is what you listen to when you go through the division bell part of the of the show. Interesting. I like it. Very cool. <laughs> now, calling gives me this creepy dystopian Terminator Blade Runner kind of vibe. That you know, I kind of, I kind of jam on, and then um, round about a minute thirty into this, Richard, presumably Richard, starts this uh, sort of sustained keyboard melody that I think is just beautiful, and and then ultimately the um, that melody gets repeated by Gilmore on the guitar, and I just, I kind of love that sort of you know repetition on different uh, mm. different instruments thing. It, it just, I don't know, it just kind of works for me. And then I absolutely adore the guitar tone and the guitar line in Eyes to Pearls. I oh, think it's yes. just delicious. Absolutely fantastic. So surfacing, my note here is that this song to me is triumphant. And, and I think there's a reason why this is the last track before the last track. Because I, I do think it 
like I said, to me, it feels triumphant. It reminds me of something, and I, I cannot put my finger on what it is, but I can't help but feel sort of uplifted when I listen to, to surfacing. And it feels to me almost like, you know, the, the closing celebration of Pink Floyd in, in some regards before you get sort of the, the encore, if you will, of Louder Than Words. So are you agreeing where I'm calling out Louder Than Words as the peak? I don't think it's the peak. I, I, I like the, the Alan Z part honestly i think i think those two tracks are for me probably the the top of this but fair enough i, I mean obviously louder than words is the only song quote unquote mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. um and it's a good one you know i, I there's something and, and i you know I, i'm kind of torn because i like i like the lyrics i think gilmore's voice is maybe not quite as smooth as i would like or as i think of it although he's much older at this point. And it's, I, I do find the sugar mice thing to be quite distracting. <laughs> I'm going to have to listen to this song uh, after this. And I'm surprised uh, you haven't heard it, Tom. It's like, it's, I mean, I love the song. I mean, I really do. Well, love yeah, Cause you love sugar mice. Words, but I have not <laughs> heard the parallel between this and mice. At all, actually. So I will listen though after this. If 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 you think that I'm completely off base, I want you to tell me honestly because I just I I can't not at this point. It's amazing. It is a guitar tone wise. It does feel like quite a departure from what we normally hear from David Gilmore. But he doesn't usually play a lot of riffs like this. No. He doesn't play a lot of arpeggiated chords. Oh, hey, oh, oh, hey. Whoa, whoa. How Sorry. many drinks you had there, Mr. Zotter? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm all convubulated because I've been, <laughs> I've literally been sitting all day and my fucking ass is killing me. So <laughs> <trying> to... <laughs> huh. But uh, he doesn't really, he never, you know, he's, he started doing some of the stuff, you know, in like some of his, some of, in the last two albums, but he would always do it acoustically or whatever. So it's the first time he's ever had that real shimmery strat sound like Rothery does. So those are the notes that I have for for this record. I agree with you, Tom. I, I'm happy that this album exists. It's it's an odd thing, you know. It's not it, it's not the Pink Floyd album that you expected uh, necessarily, but it it. I think it does serve a purpose, and and I'm very happy to you know have it in the rotation. Yeah, and, and it was nice to see. You know, we we generally just being prog people, we're not super fascinated with numbers of how many album sales and all that. I mean, it's always interesting, especially on an album like Dark Side. But reading th about this and. It, it was interesting to read that it sort of broke a lot of records of um, downloads and things like that for the year. And I don't know, there was a bunch of records that it seemed like it was, was breaking uh, for, you know, at least for that year, or at least for 2014. Um, and so yeah. it, was, it was nice that there were still fans there. There was still 
waiting. I, I think something like six thousand people bought the um, the LP that year. Or I, I think it was, I think that's what the number is on the, on the wikis. So now, if this was in the seventies, that would have been nothing, right? That right. would have been like time to just you know quit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But uh, that's like a huge number right now. And um, so it was just, it was, I don't know, sort of made me, um, it, it warmed my cockles that um, it was, that there were still numbers there and, and that, that people really still wanted to uh, hear hear vinyl and there was people waiting for the album and, 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 and whatnot. So, you know, I hope, I hope the fans liked it because it seemed like there was some some real interest in it, and um, you know because this is this is one of the great bands of all time. So I mean, it, it's nice that they went out the, the way they did. If this is indeed the last one, it looks like it is. But uh, I mean, we're assuming that based well, on they recovered yeah. out saying. I'm. I mean, they put out the box set, and David Gilmore sold all his guitars. So I'm guessing <laughs> he's closing up shop. But right. you never know. You never know. Maybe right. we can maybe we can pull him out of retirement. You know, and, and I know we've got a, a, as we mentioned at the top of the episode, we have a few more episodes to do on Pink Floyd. So next episode, we will presumably be covering the Wall in its live incarnations, and then we will cover the Wall in its movie incarnation. Wow! And then at that point. It will be time for the extravaganza. Excellent. Of, mm. of episode 100. But so we still have a couple of, you know, we have our lessons learned with our, our special guests. But, I mean, we're out of, of new material at this point. We've covered the Pink Floyd catalog. Mm-hmm. And it's been, it's been quite, uh, quite the journey, honestly. Uh, you know, I learned things about this band that I had no idea existed. And it's always fun when you can do that. I mean, the whole front half of the catalog pre-metal was basically uncharted territory for me. So I'm very happy, um, you know, and just to bait Tom, you and Mark Anthony K, uh, with the exception of Umagama, I'm very happy to have gone back there and done all of that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh. <laughs> I'm gonna pick my battles, Joe. <laughs> yeah, Mark Anthony K was seemed very displeased with me on that. <laughs> I thought that was <laughs> funny. <laughs> so you know, I, I, the, there's so much about Pink Floyd, and and you know, as we talked about in the last few episodes, you know, it, coming in when we when I did in a momentary lapse of reason and, and, and reveling in the, the beauty that is David Gilmore, you know, I was always, I, I, as I started to, to hear, you know, the earlier lore and, and, you know, to hear about, you know, in the lost art of conversation, him talk about the, the, the concern of if he could pull off, you know, a momentary lapse of reason and Pink Floyd, so to speak. Yeah, it didn't make any sense to me, but now it, it makes so much sense yeah. um, with with the way that the band developed and the way sort of the the ebb and the flow of influences in the band and everything else. It, it really does tell a pretty compelling story front to back, I think. And I really do think 
that we need to go into the book publishing business because I spent a lot of time creating these narratives when we do these segments on these bands, and I think it would translate really well into into the written form. Yeah, mm. I agree, Joe. You could have huh? a whole you could have a whole uh, bookshelf full of books already. Right, all our podcasts. It would be it would be pretty stellar. You, you could end up on like YouTube documentaries as the guy sitting on the couch pontificating about the bands. I'd have to get some sunglasses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, gentlemen, what what are your what are your closing thoughts then on the the Pink Floyd catalog? I'm going to defer to Andy Gill of the Independent. Without the sparking creativity of a Sid or Roger, all that's left is ghastly, faux, psychedelic dinner party Muzak. Wow. Wow. Damn. That's some cold-blooded shit right there. You waited all this time to say that? Jeez. (sighs) I warned you at the beginning of the episode. I I said it was, (laughs) unfortunately, hysterical. Wow. Well, there you go. People are still talking about Sid. (laughs) <laughs> it's all about Sid, man. The guy did an album and a half, but he charted the entire trajectory for the rest of the band. It's all about Sid. So I feel like after each one of these segments, I'm like, oh, well, this is just exactly why Marillion is my favorite band, or this is why Yes is my favorite band, or this is why Rush is my favorite band. But, you know, I, I, I bought a concert T-shirt when... Uh, I went to see the Delicate Sound of Thunder tour, and I, I guess I had worn this this T-shirt to one of the very first days of college when I was a freshman in the music department, and we had this big sort of music department meeting. And it it and you know I wore my Pink Floyd shirt, you know, every every Monday, every Tuesday, whatever day it was, and. Um, Apparently, for some time after that initial congregation in my uh, in my freshman year of college, I was known as the Pink Floyd guy uh, amongst some some folks. Really? Yeah. And as corny as it sounds, I you know I I am a Pink Floyd guy. I I am through and through. <laughs> All right. Well, I think I think at that point, then we can we can put a pin in this one, gentlemen. And like I said, we've got a we've got a couple of of sort of housekeeping items that we need to sort of take care of, but uh, and but this this will close out, you know, our segment on Pink Floyd. So then, after we get done cleaning up with Pink Floyd and we have the episode one hundred extravaganza, then we're going to take a trip back in our history, and we are going to right some wrongs. And we are going to give the palaver treatment, the full palaver treatment, 2020 style, to Fish era Marillion, and then moving into the Fish solo catalog. First time we've done a solo catalog. Well, no, I guess we did Stephen Wilson, so it's not the first time we did a solo catalog. But uh, but yeah, so, so that's something to look forward to, and I, that will probably take us through, I guess, the end of the year. Because Fish has a crap ton of albums that we have to talk about. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> and after that, you know, in 2021, hopefully uh, post-COVID-19, maybe mid-COVID-19 reprise. Who knows? Who knows where we're going to be? Could be anywhere. It'll be exciting. 
wherever we're going to be, we're going to be there with beach towels. We are going to be there with <laughs> beach towels. I can't freaking wait. It's going to be phenomenal. So um, it'll, it'll be the first bomb shelter with beach towels, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> so on that note, then, gentlemen, I will thank you once again for your time here this evening, your thoughts on this specific album and the catalog in general. It has been an exciting and illuminating journey, and I couldn't imagine any better people to take it with me. So thank you guys very much, and uh, look forward to seeing what we come up with for closing out the various incarnations of The Wall in preparation for episode 100. So thanks, guys. You're here. Here we go. You're here. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you. And if you have any thoughts, comments, questions, or feedback on this particular album or the Pink Floyd catalog in general, we encourage you to reach out to us. You can reach us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We are at Prague Paula or search for Progressive Palaver on all of those. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, at some point, Pandora, or presumably wherever you do find your podcasts. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening. talk to David Gilmore. I think I would wet my pants. This episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Pink Floyd's The Endless River. What the hell was that? Tom, did you install the bidet already? <laughs> <laughs> Help! That came from me. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> I I don't. That was. I don't think that was me. This <laughs> was me. Oh, I got a drink. <laughs> <laughs>